0: I'm in the most beautiful office with the most incredible views of the Liverbirds and the River Mersey. And I'm with a gentleman by the name of Bill Addy. And I've got three questions for him here on our podcast. The three questions are, what is the bid, the Liverpool bid? Who is Bill Addy? And how important religion is in his life? And we're actually
1: near a church.
0: So, Bill, thank you
1: for joining me. It's a great pleasure, Peter. Thank you for asking me to be part of your podcast.
0: No, I, I've always wanted to interview you because I am curious about um, Liverpool and your views on Liverpool, etc. So, let's start and and ask who, who Bill Addy is.
1: Yeah, well, so I am Liverpool born and bred. Born in the 50s, uh, Broadgreen Hospital. In the days when Broadgreen Hospital had a maternity unit. Grew up in and around Dovecote. Chewell Valley was the the council estate I grew up on, and so for that always lived and worked here in Liverpool. Been an absolute uh, privilege for me that uh, I've been able to be part of this city for so many years, and I'm still here.
0: And what direction were you going in when you were at school? What did so, you want to
1: do? Uh, at uh, primary school, I passed my eleven plus. And then it was a trip to the Bluecoat School in Liverpool, which was then one of many grammar schools we had in Liverpool City. And there were five lads from our council estate that went on to the Bluecoat. And, you know, the thing about Bluecoat and careers advice and all of that, the Bluecoat shaped me for um, the rest of my career, the rest of my life really in a way, but careers advice wasn't great. So I, I left after I did my A-levels didn't go to university. I left and joined the post office, sending out telephone bills. Now, it's a long way from where I am now to where I was then, but for three years in the early 70s, I was responsible for sending bills out in Lark Lane, the Isle of Man, and various other places. But I realised that being a clerical officer, although a good job, wasn't for me. I had some friends who were um, part of the construction industry that had done quantity surveying courses, And they said to me, have you ever thought about construction? And I hadn't, but in 1976, I went to Liverpool Poly, did a HND in construction management and technology. And that's where the story began really of where I ended and how I ended up here.
0: This is a bit of a controversial question. And what I like about you, you always answer questions and you've got an opinion without any shadow of a doubt. And running a company like this as CEO, you have to have an opinion. Do you think work ethic has gone out of the world to what it was when we were hungry or have i got that wrong
1: Uh, it's an interesting point isn't it because the work ethic i suppose when i started work in the 70s you clocked on you clocked off and you worked for those set hours it's completely different now because we know with modern technology uh, you are working for Well, some people can work 24 hours a day, and that is a big problem. I know over in France, legislation has come in so that you can't look at a a, a work email and companies can't allow employees to look at their emails over a weekend or over holidays. Actually, I think it's a good thing from a mental health perspective. So I just think that times have changed, and the challenges in, in, in a work environment are completely different now. Um, and Covid has accelerated in a way with working from home because now uh, people want flexible working they want to work from home but it's about I suppose that relationship between the employer and the employee which is I would say improved because we always you would have imagined the sort of the employer in the 70s and 80s was a different employer than they are now they have to be because Uh, regulation has come into control, the way that employees and employers work together. But it's about personal commitment to work, isn't it? Work is an important part of life. So I think in a a roundabout way, I'm saying it probably hasn't changed, but the perception has Mm. changed.
0: Interesting you say, and we'll talk about religion a little bit later on, but very interesting you say that about work emails at the weekend. I am a great believer, I am not religious, um, we will talk about that, um, but I think when we had Sundays, which was the day of rest and no shops open, I believe it gave structure, more structure, and life seemed to be slower. What's your views on that?
1: I absolutely agree with that, and I think this is about mental health because life is too busy. We have social media. We have everything. All those pressures on us. We didn't have that. So I remember. I, I say I grew up in the fifties. I remember on a Wednesday the shops shut. Yeah, half day. Half day on a Wednesday. Shopkeepers could have a Wednesday afternoon off because it was important for their employees. Sunday was absolutely. I mean, I remember Sunday trading coming in in the eighties. But there was always a there was always a difference on a Sunday. In fact, I was only just talking to my wife about it last weekend. Was Easter weekend? Good Friday one of the most important days in the Christian calendar. Um, But actually, it was just as busy as a normal day, a normal bank holiday. All the shops were open. Never used to be like that. And I think, yeah, it's good that you have flexibility, that people who are um, working can have the opportunity to shop. We have seven days a week now shopping. But is that a good thing for those people who work in the shop environment? Where do they get their time off? do they get time off? Because it's vitally important. Work is very important, but also is social time, also is holidays. One of my uh, colleagues here in the office asked me last week, she said, "Uh, I need to do some work over the weekend. Can I do some over the Easter weekend? So I just said, no. I said, Easter weekend is for you to have some time off with your family. And I asked her on Tuesday if she'd done anything. She said, no, I agree with you, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I spent some time with the family. I reset the mind. I enjoyed some relaxation.
0: Interesting you mentioned Easter, which is just gone. Um, I was in London uh, with some friends. I, as I say, have lost my religion, which we will talk about. But I still, out of respect for my mother, did not
1: eat meat on Good Friday, along with the same company. What is that about? That's an old Catholic tradition, isn't it? Not eating meat. On... And actually, you would re- remember going to school, you would never get meat on a Friday. It was always fish cakes. Never, you would never have meat on a Friday. And some people still have that tradition. Actually, you know, it's from a, from a health perspective, it's good to not eat meat and have a meat free day so perhaps we should bring it in but, but that's what it's about it's the mm-hmm. fact that it's the it's friday is the day of of christ's death and and the the, the sort of allegory between friday and and recognizing that by not eating meat but that's that's an interesting tradition so we we had fish on Good Friday yeah.
0: well I did out of respect yeah, for my mum who a, I lost years ago
1: yeah, yeah, but well, I but just could there.
0: not do it yeah, it's still ingrained yeah, isn't it it's that mentality once a Catholic yeah. and I'm not a Catholic
1: <laughs> tell me about this company and what it's all about and how it happened so the Liverpool Business Improvement District Company Liverpool Bid is set up by statute so I always tell the story from about business improvement districts of the two guys, the two businessmen in Canada in the 70s, in a place called Bloor Village, Toronto, when the new super mile and shopping district was entered into Toronto, their district was falling down a little bit. It wasn't getting the traffic, so they came together and said, what can we do to improve it? They actually said, well, why don't we put some money out and put some hanging baskets? and tidy up the area, so they started doing that. They realised that actually what they were doing was starting then to get notice. They then spoke to the local mayor and said, it'd be a good idea if all the businesses in this street did the same, how could we do that? And the idea of a business alliance came into being. So the business alliance movement grew in from North America in the 70s to the, the end of the 20th century, so the late 90s. The Labour government came into being. They were looking at raising additional monies for towns and cities to improve the local area. They looked at the model in North America and came up with the legislation that came into being 2004 and it's called the Business Improvement District Regulations England 2004. That allows businesses to come together to, to put a business plan forward, to go out to vote and if the vote is Uh, one by number and rateable value, that business improvement district comes into being for five years and the businesses within that district then are levied by the business improvement district. They raise a levy and it's then spent in the way that the business wants it to be delivered. So here in Liverpool, the first one came into being in November 2003, so it's 20 years old this year. First one was a pilot for two years very much centred on St John's Centre, which is the shopping centre in Liverpool, and Church Street, which was the prime retail street in Liverpool. Now the retail in Liverpool is completely different, but think back just 20 years, there was no Liverpool one. Church Street was the main street. St John's Centre was, was was busy, I and mean, it's still very busy now, but that's what they did. And they came together and spent money on additional security, additional safety, cleansing, Christmas lights, animation. And since then, we have expanded the area. So now we have three business improvement districts that we manage, but three specific business improvement districts. One of them is the retail and leisure, which is just going through a renewal at the moment. And as we speak, I'm just waiting for the result. Um, of that ballot, which will say that we'll be in place from 2023 to 28, delivering about £5 million of investment from private sector into the city centre. We have our culture and commerce bid, which is uh, the whole of the waterfront, the whole of the commercial district that we're sitting in here, and then all the way up to the Empire and Lime Street at the north end of the town centre. And then, as um, so I the retail and leisure ballot has has expanded and will include Hope Street and then the other new phenomena that we have is an accommodation bid so that's all the hotels coming together and all of those hotels will be delivering a levy based on uh, a percentage of rateable value to support destination marketing and to support something called business subvention subvention is the money that is paid to the conference organisers when they come to a city so Your listeners will know about the Arena and Convention Centre in Liverpool, or those certainly here in Liverpool. Elsewhere in the country, they'll know that we're getting Eurovision. Uh, Because if they don't know, Eurovision is coming to Liverpool in in a month's time. I don't know where they've been, but Liverpool is hosting Eurovision, partly because we have an Arena and Convention Centre. And because of that, that came in and it was delivered and developed by the City Council, but the City Council used to put £1.5 million of subvention monies, so the money that supports those conferences coming here, that's no longer available. We know um, that public sector finances are in a difficult place, so the private sector is stepping up. So that's what we do. That's what business improvement districts are. They are business organisations, but they're not they're not something you can join if you if you are in the boundary of the bid area. You have to pay the levy. It's a statutory levy. You have to. You have to pay the levy, so it's not a membership organisation. So, but, so do you work for the government or do you? No, no, we're a private company, so we work for the businesses. But the government forced them to join. Uh, the government put the legislation on no. the statute books, but they didn't. F- so the. They don't force an area to have a business improvement no. district. But if, a, if the group of businesses in the area want a business improvement district, they work with the local authority, but it's only if they want it. And then it's by ballot. So it's not imposed by government. So it's not a tax as such, although technically it's, it's a levy. But it's a levy that, that is imposed on a business only following a democratic election
0: does every city have
1: one uh, the majority of cities across the uk have them there are somewhere approaching 330 oh. business improvement districts across the uk in london there are 40 here in liverpool we have three
0: now if i had a business within the, the boundaries do i have any say in what you, you do because
1: money? because we establish um, an operating board which is constituted from the representatives of the businesses who are levy payers. So that board directs how we in the Liverpool Bid Company spend that money. Because you've got a big staff here. We have, yeah. We we have a staff who deliver the services. So that staff includes our cleaning team. We have a cleaning team which will be six. And they are out on the streets, uh, men and women, who are removing graffiti, clearing doorways street washing but they very much act in support so we're providing additional services for the local authorities
0: tell me you've been involved how long with this
1: uh i've been the chief executive of this company for 10 years 10 years
0: we went through some dark times we won't mention names we won't mention politicians we went through some very dark times to me liverpool changed Irreparably, fantastically, amazingly, from two thousand and eight, capital culture. Yeah, yeah, of but we had some sad times.
1: Oh, we've had we've had some very difficult times. I mean, even since even since two thousand and eight, and in fact, in recent times, we've we've had to deal with a number of very grave difficulties for the city. And I think it's part of the city's resilience that we're able to, to bring back for the. I mean, going back in my career, I was involved, and I'm looking at it here as I sit the Crown Plaza. So I was part of the company that delivered the Crown Plaza into Liverpool. And as a sign of how far Liverpool has moved forward, when we came with the idea of the Crown Plaza, and in fact, the whole of Princess Dog, the hoteliers in Liverpool were aghast that we were going to bring competition, we were going to bring another four star. At the same time, uh, Peter Hind, uh, was bringing the swallow hotel that's now the marriott the the, the delta um at, was coming into queen square two new four-star hotels everybody said there is nothing. There's nowhere in the market for four-star hotels in Liverpool. That's only 25 years ago. Look, where and that we are was now. so
0: negative. That oh, was gosh, it because was. Was. we had a uh, we had no restaurants, proper restaurants. Yeah. We had a few name ones, but now we're a wash with spectacular restaurants, yeah. which brings in. And also, we've got the hotels. We've got the ships that come in, which I think are worth a million pounds every yeah. time a ship comes Cruise in. Cruise
1: ships when they come yeah. in yeah, the money they spend, uh, not only just the money they spend in terms of of tendering and replenishing mm. the ships. But the money that those cruise passengers spend when they come into the city, it's great. And cruises love coming here because uh, unlike a lot of other cruise destinations, they don't come into a world class city. So they, they tie up right on the edge of the city, walk straight in. Yeah. Five minutes after leaving the ship they could be in the cavern. Yeah. They it be it, in it was
0: incredible. Yeah. And I remember being on radio at the time and I was getting incredibly cross of the, the war between Southampton and us, because yes. they didn't want us to take the ships back, did they?
1: No, In exactly. any shape or no, form. Because exactly.
0: Southampton is, uh, 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 I won't say it, no. I know I have got a view, but that was terrible. Didn't it go to the Court of Human Rights? And
1: a, it, it, there was a lot of issues around it, wasn't it? Because they wanted to, to, to repay the grant money that we were given. But I, I mean, I've sailed from Southampton. It's convenient, but that's about all you can say for it. Um, Here in Liverpool, people come into our city because we are a world-class, iconic city. We've
0: changed so much. We've got the Everton Stadium just down the road from where we are. We've got the Eurovision coming. Is it easier to sell a city now?
1: I think it is. um, I'm, I'm choosing my words on that, is it easier to sell now. It's always hard to sell a city. But we have a great brand, don't we? You go anywhere in the world and mention... You're from Liverpool, and people have a, an opinion about you. Generally, it's a positive one, because the the positive iconic message is about Liverpool mm-hmm. as as the great. <laughs> World city that people want to come and visit because of our heritage. It's it's positive now. Yeah.
0: uh, As a working comic, I had all the gags about wheels on your car. It's now gone. It appears to have finally, finally gone.
1: I think so. And when we see Eurovision, I mean, Capital Culture, you mentioned in 2008, was an epic moment for us because nobody believed we would ever get Capital Culture. And when it was announced, we did still in Liverpool, found it hard to believe, but we embraced it, and that was a uh, catapult for what's happening now. Obviously the, you see you go look backwards and you can see those steps and those places where we've been, but the capital culture was, was a significant boost because it was because of capital culture because we proved that we can deliver because of all the other work that we've done in a city, you know the giants coming, the events we brought in. I mean, 2018 was a great year for us as we celebrated 10 years post-capital culture. All of those were the parts of the the jigsaw that allowed us to bid for uh, Eurovision. And Eurovision will again be our capital, for this generation, the capital culture moment, but it will be a completely different moment because... Over a two-week period, we'll be on the world stage, particularly the fact that we've embraced it, not just as Eurovision, but because we are that open, welcoming city, we've embraced the Ukrainian connection, and we absolutely will be celebrating Ukraine. So I know Putin will not be happy when he sees Ukraine put on that world stage in an even more glorious way, and we will do it, because Liverpool will do that. That will, sh- that will shift people's perceptions of us. And going back to your point, We've got rid of all those, those mm. scouser, calmed down moments. We're, we're now seen again as that proper uh, world-class city. I mean, you mentioned earlier just about Gaucho and Hawksmoor, and but Gaucho has come into a building that was built as the extension to the Bank of Liverpool. This city at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century was one of the most glorious cities in the world. Um, And because of that, we're coming in. I mean, I I spoke in a conference in MIPIM recently about the the Liverpool waterfront, and I was wondering how to start it. So I read a quote from Herman Melville. Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, sailed into Liverpool on a sailing ship in 1840, and he wrote a fantastic piece about the glittering jewels of the Liverpool docks. And he was only used to... um, the shanty and shambles of New York, he talked, and he described Liverpool. It's a book of uh, Redbird. Redbird, his first voyage. I think it's called, worth looking at, Herbert Melville. So you just told me that,
0: and while you were talking about that, where I'm sitting now, when I was 18, I was on the Empress of Canada, and we actually joined the ship down at Bootle, then brought the ship up here, and then the passengers got on. So I have just, my head's just exploded. And to me, I've traveled the world a couple of times. To me, our waterfront is one of the most recognizable okay. in the world. And the magic when we arrived back from Canada on the trip, I, everyone dropped. We just stopped doing work and went on deck.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? In fact, my uncle, interestingly enough, was also on the inputs of Canada. Um, and I remember coming to see him in the 60s and then coming off the ship and and then uh, you see that the, the line is tied up here but this waterfront is tremendous I mean, it, and it is and what I think what we've lost I suppose as Scousers we felt a bit that we our place was not where it should be that we were a bit downtrodden because you know because we we weren't we right I mean, I'm trying to think of the right words for it I think which is unusual for me, lost for words, we were a bit unsure of ourselves, very much unsure of ourselves. Now we've got our swagger back, in a way, but I say that in a way, we're not being cocky about it. No, no, no. We're being positive about it. We are a a, a city, and as we come from Liverpool, um, to be honest, we often take it for granted, but it is such a mind-blowing city, it's wonderful.
0: What I miss most is our old Chinatown, and I don't know what's going on because there's been all sorts of problems with that piece of land. Can we talk about it or not?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, so you t- you're talking about the the, the new Chinatown, which is all the stuff on Great George Street. I know that's part of the work that the city council are looking at at the moment, and it's part of. We talked about difficult times. We've had difficult times, and they're well publicised. The difficult times that the city council have had. I I know with confidence that the city our mo- city, and the city politics is moving into a better place. Uh, I think we will see that. I think we will see um, a better relationship between our combined authority and our city that will enable us to move forward. And the fact that we do have a city mayor in Steve Rotherham um, is a tremendous asset for us. One of the things that perhaps hasn't been part of Steve's uh, ability to... to, to to move forward on and to speak about is the city region's relationship with the city and I think that will become mature and grow again and that will enable us to move forward so I think you will see the the great Georgia Street development once it's a very complex legal issue yeah yeah once they resolve those that we'll see those move forward interestingly enough the bid is when we move forward into hope street will also include part of berry street so we're looking forward to be able to work with the chinese community to be able to enable them to celebrate chinatown uh, because we talked about restaurants didn't we the place to go to where the best chinese used to be nelson street and having a pint in the in the pub on nelson street was all part of that tradition i think we've lost that as a city because the rest of the city has developed in such a great way i mean part of the best Chinese now is in in Baltic, isn't it, in and so um, again we look at how we can work together because that's the job of the bid is to work with the businesses and to work with those other areas to allow their own voice not to be lost but to allow them to have a greater voice
0: I'm talking to Bill Addy um, and uh, we've now got to talk about religion because we're sitting opposite the church which is very important to you when did you find religion or have you always had religion
1: uh, so first first connectivity with church was um, and I'll, I'll explain from a family perspective was was when we moved on to the new corporation estate in and Chilwell valley the officers of the boys brigade knocked on the door and invited my brother to join the boys brigade my brother was sadly no longer with us but he was eight years older than me Uh, He joined the BB, so this was sixty-three. He was a bit of a Teddy boy, you know, with the the quiff. But he was also invited to become a drummer. So we used to have the drum in the Boys Brigade, and he'd go to BB meetings. And I thought, I quite like the idea. That looks interesting to me. Uh, And they'd meet in the local school, and then they'd meet in the church up at the All Saints Church by the Abbey And so then I joined the Junior. The junior version, the Life Boys. Don't you ever remember them? I with the, they, they, with the little, I was a Boy Scout partner. The, well, Boy Scouts and, and Life Boys, we always had our differences. Um, but at least you knew how to light a fire with two sticks. <laughs> um, we had, um, so I joined the Life Boys. Life Boys was associated and still is. The Boys, we a Christian organisation. So I'd, I'd become, through that, I went to the local church. was the All Saints Church in Chilwell, the, Twelfth century church next to the Chilwell Abbey, overlooking the valley, and so I was always part of that church. Interestingly, enough, my mother and father sent me there, but didn't go themselves. But um, I met my wife um, through Boys Brigade. She was in the guides; I was in the BB. Uh, we were in the same youth club together. We became friends, but not in the in the same way as um, and, and, uh, she liked me. I didn't like her, I liked her, she didn't like me, eventually we clicked, I always, we always tell this, and in fact, only just uh, this week, we've celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary, so we've been very privileged, I've been very blessed, Pauline, I don't know what happened to her, but she's, <laughs> she's suffered me for the last 43 years, but no, great, um, so we went to church, um, Boys Brigade, everything was going on fine, we got married, in fact, 1980, in the mid-'80s, we had two boys, so I would have called myself a Christian, I would call myself a religious person because, in fact, Boys' Brigade was, was most important. I ended up as Boys' Brigade captain, leading the Boys' Brigade, so our whole life resolved, revolved around it. And then my eldest son became ill, um, although he, outwardly he was fine, but he had a heart condition, which subsequently I find out I've got it, and I, it was a hereditary disease I passed to him. But, so at the age of four, he was diagnosed with it. And I went through this bargaining with God, challenging God, saying, if you will help my son to overcome his, his illness, I'll commit to whatever, you know. And it's that type of you don't bargain with God because that, uh, I found that out later. But anyway, my well, son died when he was 10. And so from that point of view, I walked away from church completely. Uh, Because I couldn't believe that this loving God who I'd I'd worshipped, who um, I'd prayed to, had allowed my son to die. And I understand that um, perspective now. But um, Pauline continued to go to church. Jonathan was still uh, our our youngest son, who's now in his mid-30s, would still go to church with Pauline. And it was important for them but I used to go off for other things on a Sunday morning. I'd go for golf practice. Didn't improve my golf in any way at all, but it was something other than going to church because I couldn't stand it. Uh, but slowly, I suppose, I, I was able to, to to reconnect and resolve the issues. There were a number of steps to that, but there was one particularly where I went up into... I went to Scotland on a family ski week and a, a place that's very special for me and for the family. Um, in the near Cairngorms in the, in the Highlands. And it was at that place that, that I really came back to faith in because I realised that in the midst of... And I'm getting emotional now. i still getting emotional after all these years. In the midst of all this pain, I realised that actually God was outside on the outside of it. it was in the middle. And he was in the middle through the people that were alongside me, through the people that came and supported me. And I realised that actually in the midst of all the mess in the world. God is, God doesn't cause it, but God is there supporting, God is there enabling, and he puts people into those positions, and he, and He and that's where I came back to faith. And became a priest. Yeah, well, that wasn't part of the plan, and um, somebody said to me, um, and in fact, I always use the line myself about how you make God laugh, tell him your plans, because me and a priest which I am now and I'll I'll explain how that happened it's not something I ever planned but so I came back to faith um, and I remember coming back into church one Sunday and a lady who I know very well friends of ours said to me I pray for you every day since David had died and that's when I realised that in the midst of it there were people that were hurting in the same way I hurt because I'd lost my son but but. So anyway, I came back into church, got involved in a few church organisations and I spoke to my local vicar at the time because I thought I needed to do something a bit more. And I thought it was going to be making coffee or serving on a committee. And he said, have you ever thought about being ordained? So when I finished laughing about that, and I thought, well, no, I haven't. He said, well, I think, you, I think you'd be good so, and, and I think you should consider it. So in the Church of England, it's quite a long process. Um, it takes at least two years for you. You to put all your papers in, lots of papers, lots of thoughts, lots of searching of hearts, and being investigated. And, and uh, I mean, being investigated in the way of why do you want to do this? Um, I don't mean by external investigation, although some, sometimes some of that's necessary as well. But anyway, then you go through something called a bishop's advisory panel, which is a, a it's a, a weekend. Three days, which is actually based on the British Army officer selection course, but it's not working with oil barrels and climbing over ropes. It's actually some very, very difficult searching, um, individual interviews on various aspects, but also how you work together. And at the end of that report, comes back to the bishop to say whether you're suitable for uh, ordination or not. I was, uh, I came back. I was suitable. Then it took three years. Uh, uh, doing a degree in theology and then you do a curacy. So I was ordained only, uh, where are we now, 23, in 2012. Served the first part of my curacy in Fazakli in a great church called St Paul's in the middle of the state in Formosa Drive, which interestingly enough I'd worked in earlier in my career, 40 years ago when I worked for the City Architects. Uh, refurbished the estate and then went back into that estate and two wonderful years there with the team there. I learned a lot from the vicar there Marion who was brilliant. Um, I then moved to St Barnabas in Penny Lane, Paul McCartney's church. I did two and a half years there. Um, that was a bit of a challenge because um, I am um, self-supporting is what the Church of England calls it. So I'm a priest I don't get paid to be a priest. Uh, I work full-time as we've talked about through the bid. But then I also provide service as a priest in addition to that. When I was at St Barnabas, it was challenging because they expected me to be full-time. And so you can't be a full-time priest and a full-time employee. And we realized that, I realized that. And for my own health and sanity, um, I came and, came to St Nicholas. So I work with a great team here, with Crispin, who's the rector, who who has all of the administrative burden, so I have none of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to do what I do in, in work, and we work very closely together, from both from uh, a secular role as the business improvement district, working in the community, working with the church, things like Change Liverpool with the homelessness, the food banks, other work that we do, and then obviously the services that we have, corporate civic services, Christmas, we have about 15 carol services in there, if not more. It's a busy church. It's a very busy busy church, church, right in the centre of Liverpool, and I'm blessed that I'm now a priest there.
0: I've just come back from Israel and uh, Palestine, and I've written about it for a couple of weeks in my column. I went on a pilgrimage to see if I could find religion, because I'm getting old, and I worry about, like everybody else does... What I came back and I didn't find my faith. What I came back was uh, meeting an awful lot of people who all had their own god and they all believe they're right. I am confused by this completely and utterly.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, and that's uh, is very true because there is I mean, the the monotheistic gods so Islam, Judaism, Christianity or monotheistic, and then you have the other who are plural, plural theistics in terms of Buddha, Hindu, or... And they or all believe a, they're right. All believe they're right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I you know, and then this will be sent a cop out to you, I think the important thing is, what do you believe when you're alive? Uh, because ultimately, I'm going to say, I will leave it to God. So if I get to heaven, I don't know whether I'll get to heaven, but if I meet God... Which is clearly what we as a christian we don 't but we, we will believe that when Christ returns to earth because that 's how we interpret the gospel, when Christ returns to earth, then those who have died in faith will be resurrected first, and then those who are in faith will be God. but i I just believe in a loving God who created all of us will want the best for all of us,
0: but it is a minefield
1: it is it 's complex and obviously. We see the issues in Israel and Palestine at this moment in time, which are horrendous and getting worse. We see people, you uh, we see, we see it in Northern Ireland, mm. people who believe they're right. I would say the best thing to do is that we work alongside and work in harmony, because at the, in the centre of all of those religions is, is something which wants the best for mm. a human being.
0: Bill... We've talked at length and we could do this again without any shadow because you're a fascinating man and you've got some interesting points. What's the future for Liverpool?
1: I think the future for Liverpool is very good. Uh, In terms of the economy, we've got a lot of headwinds. We know those headwinds are there because of uh, cost of living increases, because of energy costs for businesses, because of skills shortages for businesses, because of um, produce increased costs which are impacting all of the restaurants, all of the hotels. In fact, every company and every person, all of us are seeing increased costs, whether it's from our mobile phones, from our food bill when we go to all of that is, is 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 giving us issues that we have to deal with. But the 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 opportunities as a city moving forward are good, but we have to make sure that the opportunities we have as a city benefit all of us because there's still great disparity across this city. There are areas of the city. We talked about Everton Stadium. Uh, I'm also, uh, as a priest here in Liverpool, I'm an area dean. So within the Church of England, it's, it's a sort of an administrative role that connects a number of churches together. I'm area dean of Liverpool North and Walton, which are some of the poorest parishes in the country where levels of unemployment are high, where housing conditions are poor. And so we need, as a city, to be able to bring that benefit of the city centre's growth to all areas by jobs, good well-paid jobs, good housing, all the issues that we, as a city, wish to address. But we also need government to address some of that. So politics needs to resolve. And there are a lot of turmoils, but the most important thing, I think, is for the people of Liverpool to work together.
0: But politics are in turmoil. Why would anybody want to be a politician in this day and age with social media destroying them? I compare it always to Liverpool, uh, sorry Liverpool, to football clubs. No manager gets a chance anymore. It's gotta be today or you're sacked that's the way in politics surely. it is
1: It is indeed and social media really adds to that obviously a number of politicians haven't helped themselves and we're not going to waste time talking about yeah. that but again we, all need, we need to take personal responsibility because that's the most important thing mm. don't keep saying what are you going to do for me what are you going to do for the city yeah. what do you do so what uh, do you know simple things if ever I walk past a can that's on the floor, I pick it up. Yeah, me as well. And put it in the waste bin. Me as well. Can't do it for everything, but yep. even just that little bit. Yep. And it's about how, and I pay my taxes willingly, as you will do. I, I pay all of the taxes due to me willingly because I think it's a privilege to be able to pay tax. Yep. And that's something that we need to think about how we, how we employ that. Um, the mindset that, that talks about how we work together, how we connect together.
0: I think people also, and this is this is another hour talk, so we can't talk about this, but I think also we've had a pandemic, end of story, and there is no money in the pot because everybody got furloughed. Well, I was one of the two and a half million that didn't get furloughed, that's another story. But people keep forgetting and expect everything to be
1: there. They do. It's this big government, isn't it? That we expect government to deliver everything. Government can only deliver what we pay for, and we have a national health service which is amazing. But actually, uh, do we really realise that the taxes we go in, they pay for that and we deliver? Can we afford it moving forward? We have to afford it because it's the sick and the vulnerable, and those people on the margins of society that we need to help most. Most that we can do, but again, it's about. Um, Realising that that the government is the government we put in place, it's, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't keep asking them. And growing government, it's about taking initiative ourselves. To finish off, are you excited about the Eurovision? Yeah, I mean I love Eurovision, and we've we've always had Eurovision parties at home. I remember a few years ago we we do all the scoring. I mean it's always great, wasn't it, to watch? And uh, you talk about politic politics and international politics, how. The different blocks of the countries vote for each other. We always know Bulgaria vote for Albania, but they don't vote for Greece. And we know, don't we, who Serbia will vote for. And we always know that Malta give generally still give UK 12 points because they remember what we did in the Second World War. But um, I think what was tremendous, obviously, wasn't it last year, that Sam Ryder and the BBC took Eurovision seriously. And we could argue to a certain extent that it was the BBC through Terry Wogan, Terry Terry Wogan. Wogan. may you rest in peace God bless him and all of that but he was the one that took and made it the comedy version of the, the, with his comments which were hilarious but actually got a mindset to say Eurovision wasn't serious Eurovision if you came in in, in, in um, 1954 was it 67? 1955. And it came out of the same movement as things like, I mean, the UN, the, the um, Edinburgh Tattoo. It was post-Europe, post-Second World War, bringing countries together. And that's what Eurovision was about, about bringing European countries together through a very serious competition. It was a serious competition that was previously held in Italy. And it was a way of bringing two people together. I mean, I remember Pearl Carr and Teddy Johnson. You possibly do as well. I do, do. indeed. Don't we get
0: Katie Boyle?
1: I'm a Katie. And uh, Rodger, well,
0: Rogers with Jack in the Box. Well, you, and, you see, know. Yeah.
1: I, mean, I grew up, I uh, remember Katie Boyle with interest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as a teenager. Beautiful, beautiful lady. Beautiful lady, Katie Boyle. And, and the way she spoke and uh, instantly... Yeah was able to 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 speak in French and other languages.
0: Exciting. It was exotic. And, and
1: brilliant for yeah, us. a great
0: time. And i I will make a prediction, it doesn't matter how bad it is, I'm sure that
1: Ukraine's gonna win. Yeah, and Ukraine should win, couldn't it? it all seems <laughs> the worst even if it's the worst on this song, earth. Yeah, and actually the one that won last year was good and they're gonna be yeah. performing. Yeah. So they're performing just on on the village yeah. here in the P. And that's going to be a tremendous show. And, and you know, it's, it is. When you see what's happening in Ukraine, and, and God, God willing that, that um, uh, Ukraine will be able to overpower Russia. Because it's one man. Yeah, it's Putin. One man, Putin. One man yeah. on the biggest ego in the it world. Is. Yeah, It is yeah. indeed. And that's what we need to, to stand up to that. So it'll be a great opportunity in the cultural programme. And all of that, it'll just be a brilliant time to be in Liverpool.
0: Biladi, thank you very much. Thank you, Pete. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.